0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: David Ray Griffin has done a lot of work on this. He goes into the Pentagon in considerable detail and looks at the witness accounts in great detail. His best analysis of it is that there were 31 accounts that were highly seemingly realistic, credible, plausible, and detailed enough to say what actually happened just as an aircraft approached the Pentagon. It turns out that this number 31 is not terribly high and a very high percentage of the 31 people worked for the Pentagon or the military or for major media corporations that are supportive of the Pentagon's wars abroad and the Bush administration's policies and that these witnesses simply are not the best, most credible source because there is a high level of probability of bias there.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Todd Fletcher. Today's show, The Pentagon Attack in Context. Todd Fletcher has been an independent researcher and writer on the offense of September 11, 2001, since the day of... He is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel and writes for the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He produced and hosted the 9-11 in Context radio program on Blog Talk Radio in 2010 and 11. He has assisted David Ray Griffin since 2004 in the writing of nine books on the subject. His latest effort, along with plasma physicist Timothy Eastman, is the authorship of The Pentagon Attack in Context, a reply to John Wyndham. Today we discuss all things Pentagon and related, and touch on some of the very important points in the article. Todd
1: Fletcher, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, Todd, since you're a member of the 9-11 consensus panel, perhaps you should begin by explaining what that is.
1: Yes, it's an, a relatively new organization uh, that was founded by David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth, and um, it's a group of people who are participating in an attempt to evaluate the best evidence on the events of 9-11 um, in a very objective, even scientific manner, um, It uses a a protocol, a methodology that was developed in the medical sciences for developing um, the appropriate ways to treat illnesses. Uh, It's a very objective method where we look at the evidence, but we don't communicate with one another, and we rate evidence as to its plausibility and reliability uh, independently of one another, give it numerical ratings, and then... Um, seek to find what we call consensus, which is a a very high level of agreement that specific lines of evidence on specific problems, specific issues, detailed um, aspects of the events of 9-11, that that evidence is very solid. So the way it works is um, draft points. We call our findings consensus points. They're different points of information regarding different issues. Draft points are are distributed to us by the administration of the panel, which is essentially um, David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth. And then we evaluate these things, we give our numerical ratings, and then these are quantified. And we get new drafts, and we work with, um, we improve the level of the discussion of it and the understanding of it. And eventually, we come up with what we think are very solid pieces of evidence that are consensus points, and they're posted at our website, which is Consensus911.org.
0: On what 9 11 issues is there near complete consensus among independent researchers?
1: Well, um, on many actually. Um, there's near complete consensus, very near complete consensus, on the finding that the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7, these buildings in New York City, uh, did not collapse because they were hit by planes. And burned, but um, were brought down by controlled demolition. This is a, within the 9 11 truth movement or community, this is now a non controversial issue. Um, Furthermore, that the events of 9 11, just more, even more broadly than that, the events of 9 11 were a false flag operation. That this was, that everything that happened that day was caused to happen by elements of the United States government with various kinds of assistance from other countries and from corporations and from intelligence operatives of various kinds, operatives of different kinds. Um, There's quite a high level of consensus about the Pentagon. Virtually the entire 9-11 truth community um, is in agreement that what happened at the Pentagon is another dimension of this false flag operation, that we haven't been told the whole truth about what happened at the Pentagon by any means, or even perhaps any truth about it at all, and that um, the... um, The attack on the Pentagon, like the attack in New York City, was a false flag operation. Um, The events in Pennsylvania um, are part of the same thing. So um, the list could go on at finer level of detail, but basically um, the movement is very solid and there's a tremendous amount of information and evidence been presented. David Ray Griffin is a prominent researcher and writer, has written 10 books on the subject, And the books have been very well received by the public and have helped to uh, build the movement. So um, many other fine uh, scholars and researchers have done excellent work and many organizations have been founded. And I'm sure most of your listening public is well aware of this.
0: Let's talk about your piece on the Pentagon, written with Timothy Eastman, The Pentagon Attack in Context, A Reply to John Wyndham, which appeared in the Journal of 9-11 Studies. You and Dr. Eastman suggest using a contextual approach to the question of what happened at the Pentagon on September 11th. What is a contextual approach?
1: Well, this... um This is an argument that we made that in order to best understand the events at the Pentagon, we need to look at the context in which they occurred, the broader context um, that um, what happened at the World Trade Center and elsewhere during that day, and even more broadly, what happened before 9-11 and after 9-11, all of these things um, assist us in understanding what happened at the Pentagon. as you noted, the the title indicated that this this is a letter to the Journal of 9/11 Studies in response to an article that had been published there um, by John Wyndham, and um, the point of the article was to to make a an argument for approaching the question of what happened at the Pentagon in a broader, more contextual way than we felt John Wyndham had done. So, uh, contextual means that it's. Often counterproductive in our view to look very narrowly at what happened in a specific place, but that if we have a very high level of certainty what happened at the World Trade Center, um, that helps us understand what happened at least uh, what was what was involved in what happened at the Pentagon because these were parts of one operation essentially so for example, just to just to flesh it out a little bit. Um, If, as we feel very confident now after 10 years or more of research, the buildings at the World Trade Center were brought down by controlled demolition, not because of being hit by aircraft and because of fires, but because they were actually demolished with explosives, and I could go into the evidence for that, that that fact um, that Al-Qaeda was not the cause, Al-Qaeda as understood and as Explained by the federal government as a genuine foreign Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organization that did its preparations and then the attack without any warning bells having gone off in the United States government and through an amazing set of circumstances successfully did all the damage that was done this day um, well if if the buildings were brought down by controlled demolition, then clearly al qaeda didn't do that. Al-Qaeda couldn't have brought the buildings down by demolition. Then when you look at the Pentagon, there's plenty of evidence that Al-Qaeda couldn't have perpetrated the attack on the Pentagon as well. And so um, the two different sites on 9-11, what happened at both sites, need to be considered together to make it understandable.
0: Understandable as one operation, essentially.
1: Understandable as one operation with probably – with one set of, um, of planners and perpetrators. It was one operation carried out by one group of people and that it had one overall set of purposes. There may have been more detailed specific purposes in the different sites that were also achieved or that were attempted, but that um, the whole thing was one big package. So um, this is an important – Uh, consideration in understanding what happened at individual sites.
0: Where does the story of hijackers controlling a jetliner crashing into the Pentagon originate?
1: Um, Well, it originates in the press, and um, it took a while for it to develop fully. Um, Different pieces of information or claims by the press helped it come together. Um, So, it was part of the narrative of planes having been hijacked by hijackers, Islamic fundamentalist hijackers, you know, just as that was claimed to have happened in New York City, that was claimed to have happened with the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. The same claim was made for the Pentagon. Um, but if you look at the the evidence for the claim, it's very, very untenable. Um, and there are several dimensions to that. Um, One is that there's not really solid evidence that the plane that they claimed hit the Pentagon, American Airlines Flight 77, that there's not uh, solid evidence that that particular flight actually did hit the Pentagon. By the official account, it was lost to radar by the FAA for about a half an hour. And then close before 9.30 a.m. that day, a plane was seen coming toward Washington, D.C. at a very high speed from the west, coming at such a high speed that air traffic controllers at Dulles considered it to be a military plane. It was flying so fast and it was maneuvering so rapidly that um, it didn't look like an airliner on the radar screen, and um, the principal air traffic controller there that day said this very clearly subsequently. Another element in establishing the case for that craft approaching the Pentagon as being AA-77 was that there were claims that Ted Olson, the Solicitor General from the Justice Department, that his wife was a passenger on AA-77 and that she phoned him at his workplace um, shortly before 9.30 a.m. He said that she phoned him a couple of times at about 9.25 and 9.30 and that she told him that the plane had been hijacked and that It had been hijacked by Arab terrorists wearing headbands, using um, box cutters. And he said that she claimed that all the passengers on the plane and the entire crew and the pilots and everything had been forced to the back of the plane where they were being held by box cutters, immobilized by small men with box cutters. However, subsequently, it became clear that these phone calls never occurred. The FBI In 2006, in the trial of Zacharias Moussaoui, claimed by the government to have been the 20th hijacker, the FBI backed off all claims that these calls had occurred. They, in fact, said in in evidence that they presented at that trial that um, there was no connection. There was – that the duration of the calls was zero seconds. So – you know, five years after the event, the FBI admitted that these claimed calls by Ted Olson, and he started talking about these right, right away, that these calls had never occurred. So um the plane itself, it went off radar, transponder was cut off, there was no positive identification of an aircraft seen approaching the Pentagon at high speed. And then the claims based on the phone calls, and there were problems with the phone calls also because Ted Olson kept changing his story. First, he said that his wife called him on her cell phone, and then he changed his story and said that his wife had called him on the seatback phone in the aircraft, uh, that these calls actually never even occurred. So it was primarily th- those two claims that the plane that came in was 77 and that, uh, that she had seen hijackers on it before the plane crashed into the Pentagon that established that story. However, prior to that being put together, there were other news stories that day um, that didn't actually come together all that quickly. It took several hours. I think it was late in the day before this claim about 77 actually was in the press. Earlier, they had been talking about a missile hitting the Pentagon or a smaller plane hitting the Pentagon. There was a lot of confusion about what had actually gone on at the Pentagon.
0: Well, right. And the whole narrative of these Arab hijackers was completely based upon these telephone calls that, it turns out, never took place, right?
1: Yeah, it's true more broadly than than just for Flight uh, 77. Um, uh, the phone calls were an important part of the narrative for all the flights. And um, basically, the FBI backed off the notion that cell phone calls were were used in the same body of evidence in the Massawi trial in 2006 – In 2006, the FBI would only confirm the use of cell phones for communication from any of the hijacked flights for the Flight 93 um, when it was plummeting and when it had gotten below 5,000 feet on its way down to the ground. So um, the problem they were dealing with there in 2006 was that the 9-11 truth community in the intervening years had shown that cell phone calls were impossible from uh, high-flying, high-speed airliners. And so um, it just didn't stand up to scrutiny, and they had to back away from it. And um, they did so in a legal setting where there would have been some kind of perhaps, I don't know, repercussion or something had they made the claim in a legal setting under oath and all of that. So they backed off it. The evidence for the cell phone calls is full of contradictions um, more broadly, not just with respect to Barbara Olson's calls in the Pentagon story.
0: I'm speaking with independent writer and researcher Todd Fletcher. Today's show, The Pentagon Attack in Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What eyewitness accounts are there? And how reliable are they, in your opinion, with regard to the Pentagon specifically? What about eyewitness accounts? What do you make of them?
1: Well, they're, they're very complex. Uh, it's a complex question, and different people have made quite different claims based upon their, their best attempt to understand the eyewitness accounts. There are different kinds of eyewitnesses. There are eyewitnesses who were people who were standing on the grounds um, outside the Pentagon when the events occurred. There are people who described what they saw, who were inside the Pentagon when the events occurred. And, of course, there are witnesses more broadly in the surrounding area, people who were driving on the freeways nearby, people who lived in in uh, surrounding neighborhoods, people who worked in surrounding places. So there's a wide variety of different types of witness, people in different positions. Um, and, of course, with different levels of expertise when it comes to identifying aircraft, describing aircraft, differentiating between um, aircraft noises and other kinds of noise, aircraft smells and other kinds of smell. So um, I know this sounds kind of general, but in other words, there are many witnesses, especially those inside the Pentagon and um, right outside the Pentagon, who described their shock when they were told that what had happened was the result of an airliner, a 757, striking the Pentagon. For example, they said, well, there were no uh, no visual evidence of an airliner outside the Pentagon on the ground after it had happened. And this would be like people who got outside and didn't see any wings or fuselage or tail or engines or any major parts of the plane lying around on the ground. The Pentagon, the building, the exterior of the building was very highly reinforced. It's one of the most solid buildings in the country. And many people's presumption is that an aircraft um, striking the building at a high speed would be destroyed, of course, and there might be a big fireball but that lots of parts would be lying around on the ground. I myself have never been the least bit convinced that the aircraft, an airliner, could have penetrated into the building and disappeared completely inside and left no major parts outside. For example, um, they have tails that are about 40 feet high. And how did the 40-foot-high tail get clear inside the building? Um, In any case, we can go into this in more detail. Other lines of evidence, however, came from the people who were inside the building when the events occurred. And um, there are many eyewitness accounts of people who said that bombs had gone off. And one of one of these that I believe you have had on your program is a woman named April Gallup who was in the Army Administrative Area, which is north of where the plane supposedly impacted. It's not on the direct line of impact and penetration of the plane under the official uh, claims. Her office was to the north, and she said that at 9.30, a huge bomb went off. And, you know, the ceiling collapsed on top of her and her baby. Um, Her watch stopped. The shock was so great that it actually froze her watch at 9.30, so she's sure of the time. But this was not on the line of penetration of this supposed airliner. It was quite some distance to the north. Um, There are many other people inside the Pentagon who said bombs went off. They said, for example, many of these people are military people. They know what bombs sound like. They can differentiate between the sounds of bombs and the sounds of a crash of an airplane. They have certain kinds of experience that enable them to do that. Um, They also smelled uh, explosives. They talked about um, cordite. They talked about smelling the explosives. And there were dead bodies lying all over the place that people described in locations, interior locations, well inside the Pentagon, even inside the most interior ring, the fifth ring, the A ring, there were dead bodies in there. And people, as they came out of their offices, were describing how they had to step over the dead bodies that were distributed in this interior space inside the A ring. There were more dead bodies between the A ring, and the B ring. So these are the two interior out of five rings of the Pentagon. The plane, according to the official account, only penetrated from the outer E ring to the C ring. It goes E, D, C, B, A, A most interior. There were dead bodies within the A and B ring zones beyond where the plane was said to have penetrated. So... um, Then, of course, there's a wide variety of evidence of eyewitness accounts from people outside the building. And there have been claims that um, this evidence, especially what we would call official claims, like from Popular Mechanics magazine, which took up defense of the official account of 9-11 after the 9-11 truth movement got up and running. Um, There were attempts by Popular Mechanics to debunk the 9-11 truth alternative account and they claim that it's just ridiculous to doubt that the Pentagon was struck by an airliner because of the thousands of people, as the popular mechanics claimed, that said they saw the airliner approaching or even crashing into the Pentagon. So there's been a huge effort over the years to collect these accounts of people outside the Pentagon and to see what they claimed happened visually. And... Um, there's been quite a bit of contention regarding what these accounts tell us. Part of the reason is that the accounts are contradictory, that someone will say something that sounds like it's um, credible, realistic, and and actually descriptive, but then there will be a component of their witness account that is um, contrary to fact or that contradicts something else that they said. So it's a very complex task to evaluate, and um, David Ray Griffin has done a lot of work on this in his books. He's, he's written uh, 10 books on 9-11, and in three of them, The New Pearl Harbor from 2004, and then New Pearl Harbor Revisited, I believe was 2008, and then his last book, um, 9-11, 10 Years Later, and all three of those books, he goes into the Pentagon in considerable detail and looks at the witness accounts in great detail. And um, his best analysis of it is that there were – and this is based on work done by other researchers um, – that there were 31 accounts that were highly informative in the sense of being seemingly realistic, credible, um, plausible, and detailed enough to say what actually happened just as an aircraft approached the Pentagon. And, um it turns out that this number, 31, is not terribly high and a very high percentage of the 31 people worked for the Pentagon or the military or for major media corporations that are supportive of the Pentagon's wars abroad and the, and the Bush administration's policies and that these witnesses simply from any sort of rational standpoint are, are, are not credible Um, are not the best, most credible source because there is a high level of probability of bias there. Now, other people have claimed that there were many more than 31, and so there's been numbers games played around the numbers of witnesses. In addition to witnesses who have said that an airliner approached the Pentagon at a high speed, that that an American Airlines airliner approached the Pentagon at high speed, um, there were people who said they saw small aircraft a smaller much smaller aircraft approaching the Pentagon, and there were people who said that they heard a missile. There were people who said that uh, that they were very familiar with missiles because of their own war experience and that that a missile hit the Pentagon. There was um, an account of uh, a second hand account, a person who said he met. Two people in a high state of excitement on public transit right there next to the Pentagon who said they had just seen a missile crash into the Pentagon. So while there are some people who say they saw uh, an airliner crash into the Pentagon, there are others who say they saw a missile crash into the Pentagon, and there are others who say they saw A smaller aircraft crash into the Pentagon. There are also many people who say they didn't see anything crash in, but they saw it flying toward the Pentagon and then saw a big ball of fire and heard a loud loud explosion. Um, So as you can see, it's extremely complex, but there are um, many questions about who exactly the witnesses are. And then beyond that, what kind of... um, environment their testimonies were taken in. Um, it's well established that witnesses, their testimony can be influenced by the way in which they're questioned, by who has questioned them, by what the um, surrounding um, discourse on the subject is that they've read in the papers, or that they've seen on TV. And so because of these complexities, um, eyewitness evidence is challenging to interpret And would require a lot of investigation as to the precise location, time, um, and the personnel involved in taking the account and putting out the story. And so the eyewitness account, um, in Griffin's summation, his conclusion is that it's not sufficiently clear to be certain about and that because of this uncertainty, which is built in and can't be eradicated, that it can't trump – other kinds of evidence, that actually the eyewitness evidence is probably the least useful and reliable, and that um, photographic evidence, physical evidence, video evidence is more reliable than these kinds of uh, eyewitness accounts.
0: Let's talk about some of the other evidence, assuming it exists. Is there physical debris available for analysis from the Pentagon site?
1: Well, uh, unlike at the for the WTC where the 9-11 truth community was able to acquire samples of dust and of uh, steel from the destroyed buildings and from the from the site um nothing like that's been possible to Pentagon the Pentagon was under complete control by the military and so there have been no residues of any kind that anybody could analyze independently of the government to look say for explosive residues as was found in the dust at the World Trade Center So actual material evidence, physical materials for analysis are unavailable. There's um, a fair amount of photographic evidence, however, and um, the photographic evidence does reflect upon the physical material evidence because the photographic evidence very powerfully demonstrates the lack of any significant amount of debris that would indicate that an airliner had hit the Pentagon. This is especially clear outside the Pentagon, uh, where photographs taken shortly after the attack occurred um, show no major plane parts lying around outside the site, you know, the specific location where the attack took place. There's no, as I said, no wings, no tail, no engines, no fuselage parts, no seats, no bodies, Nothing visible lying around after this plane hit this incredibly solid wall at a very high speed. And what there is is a is sort of a finely distributed um, debris field of very small parts. And um, one major network reporter said that there was nothing that couldn't be picked up by hand. Everything out there could be picked up by hand by an individual.
0: I'm speaking with independent writer and researcher. Todd Fletcher. Today's show, The Pentagon Attack in Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: So it looks like then if an airliner struck the Pentagon, it must have gone inside. The photographic evidence again makes this very hard to believe because photographs taken immediately after this event show a small hole um, at about Ground level on the first floor level of the Pentagon. This is wedge one of the west wing of the Pentagon, diametrically opposite from the part of the Pentagon where all the high brass have their offices. So it's as far away from those generals that the terrorists would like to have killed as could possibly be. um, That at this location uh, there was a small hole, maybe about 20 feet wide, and there were gashes in the first floor to either side of this hole, extending out about 90 feet on either side. Now, this was only visible for a short time because about 45 minutes after this initial strike, which the official account claims occurred at 9.3746, but other evidence indicates occurred quite a bit earlier, possibly as early as 9.30. That's when April Gallup's watch stopped. Or 9.32, there's several lines of evidence that uh, something happened at 9.32, including early press reports, all of which specified 9.32. Um, for some reason, they wanted to add six minutes to it. We can get back into that. This gash that's visible, this small hole in this 90-foot gash, um, it doesn't look visually like an airliner could pass through this small hole and this gash. The gash is not continuous. There's damage done on either side of this central hole, um, out extending about 45 feet on either side for a total width of 90 feet. But um, it's discontinuous, you know, broken windows, um, smashed walls, but it doesn't look like a gaping plane-shaped silhouette of a plane like was briefly visible on the side of one of the towers before before the tower was demolished. Um, that That was not visible. Then Something happened, and the whole facade of the Pentagon collapsed about 45 minutes later. So um, that made it very difficult to investigate the whole uh, extensively and carefully, forensically, you know, a a full-fledged investigation. It all just collapsed. So all we had are these photos. Well, the photos are not convincing. Um, Nevertheless, the official claim is that the plane penetrated the outer wall and entered— into the Pentagon and that the plane somehow shrunk itself down, like say maybe the wings folded back. So instead of being 125 feet wide as they were before impact, they got down to within 90 feet. And then somehow they got around the difficulty of this discontinuous nature of the damage done along this this 90-foot gash. And then there's the problem of the tail, the 40-foot high tail. It would have impacted up to the fourth or fifth floor of the Pentagon, but there's no evidence of any damage done above the second story. And the floor between the first and second story, that is the second story floor, um, is unbreached, undamaged, essentially, Um, right at the center of this attack. So it didn't look like the tail went through there, but, you know, maybe something amazing happened to the tail too. Um, And that then all of this penetrated the Pentagon and then just broke up into myriad small parts, uh, so small that they really can't even be identified. So photographic evidence of the debris inside the Pentagon is equally unconvincing that an airliner penetrated the Pentagon. There's a bunch of broken up stuff inside there and, and um, plausibly airplane material perhaps. The thing that the um, defenders of the official account of this particular question, which includes some people in the 9-11 truth movement who are defending this aspect of the official account, they claim that a that a rotor from a 757 engine was photographed in there. But there are no photographs of seats. There are no photographs of bodies. And initially, the official account was, or at least, even though it wasn't published officially, it was in the press and was considered to be official, the official version for quite a long time, was that the temperatures inside were so hot that the aluminum shell of the plane vaporized and that well, you know, the reason there isn't 100 tons of debris inside the Pentagon, which is what the plane weighed, is because it all vaporized. And, you know, it's not a very convincing explanation. And, of course, they, they backed off of it later. I mean, it didn't, didn't last very long. Part of the reason being that then they also claimed that they had bodies that they identified. They claimed they were able to identify the passengers on the plane and all the people who were killed. And, of course, if there had been temperatures of such a level that it could vaporize the plane, then the question is how are the – how's the DNA of the human victims and the fingerprints on the on the little fingertips that they claim they collected here and there, you know, and they were able to identify the fingerprints. How could they do that in such a hot environment? You know, so the story didn't really hold together very convincingly.
0: Well, what about videos from an estimated 85 locations outside the Pentagon for a a visual analysis?
1: Yes, apparently there were 85 videos commandeered by the FBI shortly after the event. And um, one of them, uh, the uh, proprietor of a gas station outside the Pentagon, said that the FBI was there within minutes of this attack and commandeered the video that the station maintained that looked toward the Pentagon. And the FBI systematically did so with all the exterior videos. And um, Freedom of Information Act requests have established that there were 85 of them that the FBI seized and have never shown. The FBI has never allowed these videos to be shown. One would think if they were trying to convince a a skeptical segment of the public that that the Pentagon had been hit by an airliner and that if one of the eighty-five videos, these are from all around the Pentagon, many different locations, that they would have shown it, but they never have. So to date, there's no video evidence that confirms an airliner striking the Pentagon, or really that shows anything striking the Pentagon. Five frames from a video were released by the government, and um, they're very unconvincing. They show what appears to be, to my eye, it looks like maybe a missile right at ground level approaching the Pentagon. But I have to sort of, um, you know, interpret that willfully to, to see it. There's just sort of there's just sort of a, sort of a, a smoky, curly thing um, approaching the Pentagon, and then there's a big flash of flame. Actually, um, this particular video is interesting because it proves that this information that was released by the authorities was um, tampered with and falsified because two versions were released, and the second one was not identical to the first one. The first one was you know, kind of laughable, and nobody really believed that it showed uh, a plane approaching the Pentagon, an airline approaching the Pentagon. So it was re-released some years later, and um, a very, very sophisticated... Um, video analysis showed, precisely located where it had been doctored. So we know now that this is video fakery that was perpetrated by, you know, some agency as before the the second version was released. So it's um, it's a pretty weak body of video evidence for the strike. So it's interesting that for the Pentagon the black boxes um, from the plane were claimed to have been found by the government. Whereas for the World Trade Center, there the government claims that the black boxes were never found. This is an unusual claim because black boxes are almost always found, even they're frequently pulled up off the ocean floor when planes crash into the ocean. Now, there is evidence that the black boxes were in fact found for the World Trade Center buildings, but the government has never admitted that they were found. So this is the point. Where there's video evidence that the buildings were hit by planes, then there's gonna be no additional information like what's on the black boxes. But for the Pentagon, where there's no video evidence that any plane hit the building, and therefore something more is needed to prove that the plane did hit the building, the black boxes were found.
0: Well, Todd, I want to ask you about these uh, black boxes at the Pentagon. At some point, the government claimed it had recovered the flight data recorder of Flight 77, which they claim smashed into the Pentagon. How reliable would the data from this uh, flight recorder be, in your opinion? What are the issues surrounding this FDR?
1: Yes, it's a very important question. Um, I consider it... um very unreliable and there're some real strong reasons for that first the official account of where it was found is contradictory there are a couple of uh, agencies that in their accounts claim that the black box was found just inside the building where the plane entered and yet another another agency in its official report says that the black box was found at the far end of the path of penetration of the plane by the C-ring. So one official claim is that it was found at the E-ring. One official claim was found at the C-ring. So they're contradictory. So they didn't get their story um, properly lined up. Another fact is that it was found at 4 a.m. on a particular day. I forget what the date was. It was supposedly found at 4 a.m. Well, this is a time when there's just nobody around to um, independently confirm the claim that it was found had it been sort of introduced as bogus fdr from somewhere else there'd be nobody there to uh, to see that happen so having it at 4am was an unusual time to find it the third thing is that the the data file that was created uh, for the information that was retrievable from the fdr that was claimed to have been found the data file was created 4 hours before it was found. So um, that doesn't work either. Then there's um, another major problem with it. The government has never said what the unique identifying serial number of the FDR was. Every part in every plane has a serial number on it, and it's a unique identifier. And when planes crash, there are always forensic investigations to determine what happened. And Part of the process of investigating any plane crash is that every single part is logged by its serial number, and of course this um, happens in all investigations. It didn't happen for a single one of the four planes on 9/11, let alone 77. So um, the government claims that the parts, you know, were all swept up from the interior of the Pentagon and put in a warehouse, but they've never ever um, gone through the standard process of. Um, identifying all the parts and, you know, laying them out and sort of reconstructing the plane. This is the typical approach. Um, this was never done. And one part whose identifier was never, never um, divulged and never associated was the FDR. Then uh, there are, I think there are metadata elements as well of the FDR that are up in the air. It hasn't been proved in terms of the, the metadata, the digital file, descriptors that establish the genuineness of the data from a genuine FDR, the metadata that would establish its genuineness when you transfer the data off of it. This has never been established either. So I consider the FDR to be an example of the government providing something in lieu of real evidence to back up its claims. And I don't think that it is reliable. Um now the FBI took over the investigation of what happened at the Pentagon. This is unusual. Usually these investigations are led by the National Transportation and Safety Board. And here the FBI takes over and of course they don't follow anybody's rules but their own and they say, you know, this is part of a larger ongoing investigation and you know your FOIA request is denied because we're just sequestering it all for our you know our legal purposes. But, you know, this is unique. This is a unique uh, mode of government operation. This never had been known to have happened um, in earlier catastrophes of any kind. So it, it stands out like a
0: sore thumb. I'm speaking with independent writer and researcher Todd Fletcher. Today's show, The Pentagon Attack in Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that for any criminal act, investigators must always consider means, motive, and opportunity. Could you discuss some of the means, motive, and opportunity necessary to pull off an attack on the Pentagon?
1: Yes, and not just the Pentagon. um, The other sites as well. Clearly, these events required a very high level of control of different elements and powers of the government. And um, when you look at the total picture, it's pretty clear that the only people who could have pulled it off in terms of delivering whatever was delivered, whether it was aircraft or establishing uh, explosives and setting them off in sync with diversionary aircraft activities, and then the failure – on the part of the standard air defense system. The people who who did this, they not only were able to launch the attack, but they were able to make sure that the air defense system didn't interfere with any elements of the attack. And um, other elements of the control was the subsequent investigation, the way um, the investigation of the 9-11 events is completely unlike the investigation of any earlier catastrophes even, I would say, the very uniform manner in which the press parroted the government's lines, um, all of these things indicate very highly placed people. And there is a group of people um, who can be identified. Now, there's a lot of evidence that um, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld uh, were deeply involved in the events of the day. Their activities have have been tracked very closely. In fact, at the 9-11 consensus panel, we have several points. It may be our biggest single section. Um, We have a point for each one of these leaders, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Myers, um, others, what they did that day according to the best evidence and what they said they did and the contradiction between what they said they did and what they actually did. These are important points. But beyond these uh, highly visible individuals at the, the levers of government on the day, there's a very large body of people uh, in the background who are their associates. And there's an organization that goes by the name of the Project for the New American Century. And this was a group of neoconservatives that um, formed the organization after George H.W. Bush had lost his bid for re-election. Clinton came into the presidency. People from the Bush administration, basically these neocons, um, they formed uh, PNAC, the Project for the New American Century, and they were an advocacy and research organization. And they published many things and they made the things that they would like to see future government policies embody. They, they made these very clear and they considered that the United States needed to have a much more aggressive foreign policy and they pointed out the importance of controlling oil resources around the world and uh, extending the military bases, uh, U.S. military bases around the world. They called for weaponization of space. They wanted to establish a foreign policy of preemptive, preventive war. Um, they had all these goals that they articulated in numerous publications um, available on their website. And this is all in the late 1990s um, prior to the election of Bush uh, the son, George W. Bush. Um, one of the things they called for in one of their documents um, was a new Pearl Harbor. They explained the importance of controlling Central Asia. And they actually said that the activities that would have to take place for this to be accomplished would be very unpopular. And without a new Pearl Harbor, you know, a shock to the country that galvanized a willingness to, to launch a war and seize Central Asia, um, it would never happen. Well, um, shortly after this was published, it was published in 2000, um, Bush was installed by uh, a judicial coup d'etat. And nine months after he took office, we've got 9-11. There were actually people who could sort of feel it coming. Um, You'll remember Mike Rupert on your show very early in uh, 2001 itself, as I recall. Um, And I remember that in the spring of Two thousand one, Mike Mike Rupert said, you know, look out, um this summer we're gonna be going to war. You know, these guys want war. And he actually, you know, he'd been tracking PNAC and also reading um Zbigniew Brzezinski, whose book The Grand Chessboard, laid out this strategy, is very similar. You know, the Kissinger Brzezinski um opposition, you know, that the notion that these two guys are, you know are rivals. Um, actually, I, I don't think it's accurate because their policies, what they've pursued over their uh, their careers, are so similar, and so it's not surprising that Brzezinski's call for a new Pearl Harbor. He also did the same thing in his book, calling for a shock to the public to to uh, knock this democratic nonsense and this this peaceableness out of out of the way and be able to go forward. Um, it was very similar to what Pinak was calling for. Well, anyway. Um, so Bush gets installed and then all of these guys come into office. They go into the Pentagon as staff, you know, high-level staff behind Rumsfeld and they go into the cabinet and in the White House. And so all these guys who were out there in the wings for a while, they come in and they've got their battle plan already. They know exactly what they want to do. And within 9 months, we've got we could go into endless detail about this. We're trying to talk about the Pentagon. So the point here is that you can envision the events of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as being part of one operation. And, you know, maybe look at the World Trade Center as the financial symbol of the country. The Pentagon as the military center of the country, symbol of the country. And that um, by these two shocking strikes, you just knock down any resistance on the part of the public to the launching of a war. And of course, the war that was launched was not just Um, international, but it was domestic as well. A a war launched on our civil rights, on our privacy, on our freedom. And if they can get all this established, then it'd make it very difficult to turn around. This kind of approach would be in the saddle for a long, long time. And so it's a shock therapy approach to policy, to politics. And um, obviously not every member of the U.S. government is part of this or subscribes to this or would have anything to do with this. But Um, Clearly, at this time in the Bush administration, this was the game plan and this is what they did. Um, Now, with respect to the Pentagon, um, there may have been additional objectives. Um, Oddly, just on September 10th, the day before, Rumsfeld had in a sort of a shame-faced way admitted that $2.3 trillion of Pentagon money had been lost. And um, the very next day in this strike – Whatever happened right there in Wedge 1 on the ground floor, well, what it did was whatever happened there um, managed to destroy the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Army administrative area that was those two agencies within the Pentagon in that precise location were investigating the missing $2.3 trillion of Pentagon money. And the computers were destroyed. 43 out of 44 of the Office of Navy personnel were killed. And um, the uh, the auditing branch of the Army administrative area was also hit very hard. So is that a coincidence? It's not very plausible that that's a coincidence. So it seems that um, there may have been Pentagon-specific purposes behind what happened there. In other words, there are these general purposes that we've described. But that for each of the different sites, there are specific purposes – And, of course, in the collapse of World Trade Center 7, a lot of investigative data was lost as well. There were SEC investigations and other important bodies of information that were destroyed when WTC 7 was destroyed.
0: Well, yeah, Todd. I mean, specifically, weren't there investigations of the collapse of Enron, WorldCom, all of these uh, high-level collapses of companies, then all of that information went down with – Building 7,
1: didn't it? It it did. And in the Pentagon, one of the results was that uh, all the data around the missing monies in the Pentagon was destroyed as well. So it seems that there may have been, in addition to the general purposes, these site-specific purposes that um, influenced exactly what happened. I'd like to point out again, um, getting back to the World Trade Center, the importance of the consideration that that the planes were really – Diversionary. The planes created this incredible visual image of attack, and they provided something for people to believe that was the cause of the the destruction of the buildings there. But in fact, the buildings were impervious to such destruction. They were designed to be struck by planes. Um, it's also been shown with very um, strong research by a guy named Aidan Monahan that um, the flights the actual flight paths of the airliners into the towers could not possibly have been flown by live human beings, that the um, the approach was so fast and the course was so complex with descending curves and then the, the striking into the, the walls of the buildings was so precise that um, it required a continuous computer-driven course correction for this to have been possible. A human in a plane flying that fast would have had to jerk the wheel two or three times in the last few seconds and it wouldn't have been this smooth curve that's visible on the videos. You can, you can determine this by looking at how incredibly smooth the curve of approaches of the planes as they struck the buildings. So the evidence that the planes at the World Trade Center were flown by remote control is very strong. This again undermines the notion that they were flown by uh, inexperienced Al Qaeda operatives with limited um, capabilities. Um, the flight path into the Pentagon that's claimed by the official county is another one that, that many experienced pilots say simply couldn't be flown by honey honjur or inexperienced flyers. They say even as very experienced fighter pilots and airliner pilots couldn't have flown the plane into the Pentagon in that manner. So the role of the planes here is diversionary. It's to provide a story that convinces people that the country has been attacked. In the meanwhile, bombs are used, as we know this at the World Trade Center, bombs are used to accomplish what they want to accomplish, which is to bring these buildings down. Well, at the Pentagon, um, it's the same thing. And as we said before, many of the people inside the building said that bombs went off in there. So um, it seems that the role of the planes was diversionary. And meanwhile, bombs are doing the work. So the same methodology then under this hypothesis, the same methodology was used at the Pentagon as was used at the World Trade Center.
0: Who was John Lear? And what has he had to say about the aircraft purported to have been used at the Pentagon?
1: John Lear is the son of the founder of Lear Jets, and John Lear himself was a, an experienced pilot, an airliner pilot. He has cast doubt on the ability of airliners to fly at low elevation in the manner that the official account claims. And I believe that he made this point with respect to the Twin Towers. So it's not just that a plane can't fly you know, uh, 10 feet off the ground or six feet off the ground, as some of these eyewitness accounts outside claim. So not only can airliners not fly at 450 or 500 miles an hour just above the ground, but they can't fly even at that speed at the top of a twin tower at 1,000 feet, because they're not designed to fly at these high speeds in the lower atmosphere. Those speeds are only possible way up high where the air is real thin. As you go down, the pressure gets greater and greater, and those kind of speeds would cause the plane to become unstable and for parts to start falling off.
0: Well, Todd Fletcher, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Todd Fletcher. Today's show has been The Pentagon Attack in Context. Todd Fletcher has been an independent researcher and writer on the events of September 11, 2001, since the day of. He is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel and writes for the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He produced and hosted the 9-11 in Context radio program on Blog Talk Radio in 2010 and 11. He has assisted David Ray Griffin since 2004 in the writing of nine books on the subject. His latest effort, along with plasma physicist Timothy Eastman, is the authorship of The Pentagon Attack in Context, a reply to John Wyndham, which was the subject of today's show. Todd Fletcher's articles may be accessed online at www.dailybattle.pair.com. That's D-A-I-L-Y... B-A-T-T-L-E dot P-A-I-R dot C-O-M. The nine eleven consensus panel is posted at consensus911.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org
1: Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in G. And our new world order is about to begin You know what I'm saying? Now the question is Are you ready for
0: the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine You dig what I'm saying? If
1: you take heed to the words of wisdom That are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cypher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying?
0: Look what decides yourself for peace and release. You dig me? You got me?